Welcome to the Drinks and Data Podcast, where we are serving up expertly crafted conversation that entertains and informs. Hello, everybody. This is Sean Hellick, serving once again as one of the hosts of the Drinks and Data Podcast. I am joined this week, per usual, by my partner in wine, the Sheriff Flanders of Data himself, Mr. Cannon Kozad. Cannon, good to have you on the mic today. And what are we serving up on this episode of the Drinks and Data Podcast? Sean, it's good to be had. Oh, wait, that, that came out wrong. Uh, it's great to be here, is what I wanted to say. Uh, what we are serving up today on the Drinks and Data podcast, Sean, um, are a couple of choice topics. One, in our drinks topic, we're going to talk about the state of American single malt whiskey. And in our data segment, we're going to talk about the state of data and analytics in general in our country. And we're going to base that on a new report that was published by the fine folks at Salesforce and Tableau. Um, that's what we're going to chat about. Yeah, assuming, that, assuming that that is reasonable to you. Sir. I, I think that would be fabulous. Yeah, I think, yeah. And I think, you know, it's still it's still kind of the beginning of the year. And it is. I think it's good to kind of do a checkpoint as we're early into a year to just kind of see what some of the prognosticators have in mind for what's coming for the for the rest of the year. And, yeah. you know, put some of those, I'll say, guideposts out there for us to take a look at. So. So, yeah, I think that'd be great. We'll we'll talk a little bit about where, you know, at least at least we'll, we'll, we'll kind of I don't want to call it factor crap, but we'll kind of just we'll, we'll take a look at what. Salesforce and Tableau put together and we'll just kind of see if maybe we can poke some holes in it or just see some if we we agree with some of what they've prognosticated for the year. We do have to step up a little bit, though, because our, uh, you know, our listeners might recall that our last episode, we talked about uh, data project fails, which, sure. you know, let's admit everybody likes to gaze at a train wreck. And uh, that was a pretty fun topic. So, but I think we can rise to the occasion hopefully today and give people some uh, moderately amusing anecdotes uh, about our opinions on the state of uh, data and analytics uh, for the year upcoming. Fabulous. All right. Well, per usual, we start off each episode talking about what we're enjoying for the episode from a beverage perspective. So I'm going to turn it over to you first. Cannon, what have you got for your drink of choice for today's episode? Well, I, I have I have uh, what should be a simple answer, but what's not a simple answer, because what I would like to be drinking is uh, this lovely bottle uh, of Whiskey Del Bac, uh American Single Malt, um, that I will talk about a little bit in our drink segment. But what I am actually drinking, because for the last week I've been uh, waylaid uh, by a sinus infection, and you may hear that a bit in my voice, um, I'm drinking a, a cup of hot apple spice black tea uh, from uh, Harney and Sons, an English uh, tea maker uh, that my wife procured uh, at the, uh, where did the where she go? She actually got this as she brought this back from the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Uh, so it's one of those snooty uh, Met gift shop teas. And, and I'm a coffee drinker, which you know, and I know you share that proclivity with me. 
Um, but I do, when you have, I do. And, when I, you, and I know about snooty gift shop teas because when we yeah. were in London in the fall, my wife had a chance mm. to go to Buckingham Palace. And she yeah. Went. Oh, I, and I didn't cheap. ask for this, but I'm just going to assume that it's kind of like Disney with that they shuffle you through and oh, they make yeah. you come out the gift shop. And yeah. so she yeah. came back with some English breakfast tea from yeah. Buckingham Palace. So yeah, well, you'd have to imagine that at the you know the 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 you know that would be the mother load you know the 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 queen mother pun intended of uh, tea shops would be the tea, the shop at Buckingham palace. You know, it's interesting what you said about shuffling people through. I'm sure that's right. Um, number of years ago, this is a complete tangent. So please, uh, uh, forgive oh, really my wife and I were in, um, Rome and we went to, uh, the Vatican and, and neither one of us are even the slightest bit Catholic, but, you know, it's an incredibly interesting um, site. And we wanted to see the Michelangelo, the famous, you know, the famous Michelangelo frescoes in the Sistine Chapel. So we went and it's a stunning place. But and, and it's it, it, it. But they do. They shuffle you out of through the Vatican gift shop. And it, it is a uh, I don't want to get in trouble here, but it's a Catholic feeding frenzy at the gift shop uh, and it was really something to behold um and i actually did pick up a few things to bring back as gifts to catholic colleagues but anyway that's quite a digression it's, it's the so, Tom, you, so I'm, drinking, I, I'm drinking tea you what what are you drinking tell me you're drinking something more interesting than black <laughs> you know, Canada, we are we are we have hit the bottom <laughs> of the trough oh no okay um one might say this is the absolute most responsible episode we've ever recorded in that I am drinking Cab Cameron's Velvet Moon coffee here wow. in the, the late afternoon recording time. Um, wow. Again, it's been uh, it's been one of those weeks. You you know, the backstory of you know, buying houses and I do. Being, well, staring, I do. staring a big move in the face. There's just there's let's just say. For those of us, for those of our listeners who's been really paying close attention, they'll notice that there's a little bit of a gap between episodes. And to say that there have been a few things going on in both of our lives is mm -hmm. probably a bit of an understatement of understatement. It's a tad, a tad of an understatement. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. late nights, early mornings, and tons and tons of work have been the norm. So I am now in a spot where I am drinking coffee late yeah. in the afternoon, and it's it's as much out of necessity as anything else, but you know, you know, technically, although technically Sean, in our defense, in our collective defense, which I feel like I need to rush to at the moment. Um, the name of the podcast is drinks and data, not drams and data, booze and data, liquor and data. And you know, tea and coffee are drinks. They are. They, they, yeah, they, yeah. they fit, they fit, yeah, they are, they fit they are in drinks. the genre. And, yeah, yeah. and it just yeah. emphasizes our commitment to responsibility. Really, it really does. It really does. It really does. We should also extend a shout out, uh, certainly at least a hello uh, to our producer, Andy, uh, as we should do every week. Um, and our listeners might be interested to know, because I certainly am, because I'm not a parent, that Andy and his wife are expecting, uh, perhaps during the recording of this podcast, uh, a, a new addition to their family. So, uh, from the drinks and data family, Andy, we, uh, we wish you all the best of luck, uh, and, uh, um, 
and man, I'm glad it's you and not me. Do we pay the podcast fees by the Andy family headcount? Is that, is that yeah? Well, uh, this that may be if if Andy is going to those links to to get a few more shekels from us, then then you know what he's earning them. He gets he, he's, and he's doing it all wrong because he's supposed yeah, to have yeah. he's supposed to have his his wife's supposed to have the baby at the end of the year so he gets yeah. the full tax benefit. Having having a having an extra child to make a few more bucks from us as our producer would be what's I believe known as a Pyrrhic victory. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Anyway. All right. Sean, shall we move on? We shall move on. So, Sean, let me ask you a question. You know the old aphorism, everybody wishes they had an Italian grandmother, right? 100%. And not being even the slightest bit Italian, um, even I think that I can appreciate the, the notion of having an Italian grandmother. And when you come and visit me here in Kansas City, Sean, uh, because Kansas City is not only where... I make my primary home, but also the home of the multiple world champion Kansas City Chiefs, uh, which is certainly worth calling out uh, just because I know it rankles you so much. Um, Somebody had to win. It's, <laughs> you know what? Somebody had to win. Somebody should also tell the now unemployed coaches for San Francisco that because they just really seem to be like poor losers to me. But I digress. Yeah. Who's sponsoring this week's drinks episode? Well, I'm going to tell you because we've all wished that we were lucky enough to have an Italian grandmother, but we not not all of us can. But if you come to Kansas City to visit, Sean, I can take you to a spot, a new wine bar in Kansas City that is really setting the bar pun intended, um, for boutique, intimate, Italian grandmother-esque wine bars called Vita's Place. Vita's Place in the Crestwood shops in Kansas City, Missouri is not so much of a bar as it's a warm, inviting Italian grandmother's kitchen. And it features an ever-evolving, carefully curated wine list filled with unique vintages that are perfectly stored and expertly poured. And also a selection of bespoke cocktails that focus on gin, agave spirits, vermouth, aperitifs, and digestifs. Our food selection. You had me at agave. I knew I would. I knew I would. And also, uh, it's the place for carefully curated small bites. Vita's Place in the Crestwood Shops in Kansas City is proud to be a partner of Drinks and Data. Coincidentally, it's also a partner of Underdog Wines, one of our other proud sponsors here on Drinks and Data. And I encourage you, Sean, and you, Andy, and all of our listeners, if you're anywhere in the Midwest and you make your way to the Paris of the Prairie, that is Kansas City, Missouri, to stop in and check out Vita's Place. So, Cannon, this week's drink segment is going to be is the state of of American single malt whiskey. Well, it really is. It really is. And and the reason for this topic this week is it's very personal. And and we, of course, try to keep the, the underlying tone of drinks and data very lighthearted and very kind of freeform. And 
Um, but um, some of you all, some of our listeners might recall that in an earlier episode last fall, when you asked me what I was, what I was drinking back when I was actually sipping on something other than hot tea, I was sipping on a dram of whiskey from a distillery in Tucson, Arizona called Whiskey Del Back. And I, I think I mentioned that it was a bottle that had originally been gifted to me by my much adored older brother, Roy, who has lived in Tucson for 20 years. And I had visited once and he and I had visited Whiskey Del Back, the distillery, um, a almost literal mom and pop spot at the time. And I was just blown away by what they were making and how they were going about making it. Now, why that's bittersweet is because I started, uh, my, my family and I started our year this year with the really, really sad news of my uh, brother passing away. Um, and um, I'm, as his estate executor, I've been spending pretty much half of my time down in Tucson taking care of that. So the notion of this whiskey that he introduced me to uh, and that I thought a lot of is even more acute. And I've had uh, an opportunity as a way to kind of divert myself from all the work that one does when you're in that position to go up and visit Whiskey Delback again recently. And I can tell you that they're, while still very, very small and intimate as a producer, they're the furthest thing from that you know, in an industrial shed, basically mom and pop, uh, the uh, distillery that I visited a number of years ago, they're just making the most amazing, amazing stuff. And it, it prompted me when I was thinking about this episode that, um, to, to think about all the other really fine, really interesting and really unique American whiskeys being made in the scotch style that we now are 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 able to have and, and are graced with here in the country and if you go to you know any really really top flight liquor store especially your bigger ones like your total wines for example mm -hmm. um if you go and you check out their their American whiskeys selection, you're going to find that, you know, of course they have lots of bourbons. That's what we're kind of known for. It's our national drink. But more and more, you have this category of whiskey called American whiskey, generically called American whiskey. For a long time, that American whiskey was just kind of, you know, bring all comers. But because the industry has gotten more mature over a number of years, they'd set up a, a formal commission um, and the American whiskey manufacturers, distillers, I should say, are applying to the U.S. Congress, actually, to have its own specific, you know, basically uh, trademark created. Um, and back in 2016, a group of distilleries banded together and, and formed the American Single Malt Whiskey Commission. And the goal there was to, um, to rein in a little bit of the Wild West nature of American single malt whiskeys and provide some formulation. And just like, you know, bourbon, you know, bourbon is a term of, it's a term of art, but it's a very legal thing. 
right. very specific. We've talked about that on on drinks and data before, but you know, American single malt whiskey strives as a category to be similar, and it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> in fact, it's it's really whiskey made in the Scotch whiskey style, but there are a few um, kind of guidelines that have been laid out that many many distilleries are now following when they create whiskey of this style. And one is that it, like scotch, uh, American uh, single malt is made from 100% malted barley, which is, of course, a significant distinction from bourbon. Um, Like scotch, has to all be distilled uh, entirely at one distillery, has to be mashed, distilled and matured in the U.S. of A., um, it's matured in oak casks. There are some other um, particulars about that that get a little pedantic. Um, it needs to be distilled to no more than um, 160 proof, uh, which is which is pretty hot, man. I mean, ABV. No more. Well, thank goodness. Yeah, yeah. Well, I thank think you know, they throttled it back. Down they, yeah, yeah. They really, really, they really throttled it back um, uh, to that. I think largely for fear of explosion. Yeah. Um, and then it also has to be bottled uh, at 80 proof or more. So okay. Okay. you know, 40. So- yeah. So let me, so let me you, ask you, you track on all of that, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm tracking on all that. And and you know me, I'm kind of a, uh, I mean, I'm, when, when you say brown liquor to me, I'm thinking Añejo tequila. Okay. So of I'm, course, I'm, exactly. I am not a, I'm not the world's biggest aficionado of the whiskey, bourbon, scotch realms, right? Right, and, right. And it's, and, and, you know, people will get very, angsty with me they're like well those are all whiskeys and blah blah blah, blah. right okay yeah, yeah. i get all that but for the for just the common working man here okay yeah if i were to take and put in front of me a, li- a little glass of let's just say single malt scotch yeah a glass of bourbon and a yeah. glass of american single malt whiskey yeah. can you just in like a couple of bullet points Tell me what would I expect in general to experience in those three glasses um, and kind of what what does the common man, what should the common man expect to be differences and, and why might they like one or the other? Over yeah, you know, it's interesting because I think the most, you know, all comments said with asterisks and caveats, but I think the most um, uh, certainly complicated not complex necessarily, but complicated of those three is bourbon, mainly because the mash bills, the the ingredient list of bourbon, it can be so, um, you know, complex. Whereas Scotch whiskey and American single malt whiskey are all made from the same ingredient, hundred percent malted barley. Okay. Now, so they kind, of, they kind of stay in in a tighter they do, lane. They do, and I, I think because of that, you know, bourbon tends to be, in general, a little bit sweeter. Okay. And bourbon, I think, a lot of times tends to be bottled um, a little hotter. So you find bourbons that are, you know, pretty high ABV. Okay. And I think also a lot of times bourbon is best drunk, enjoyed at that higher ABV, whereas scotch and American single malt 
um, will oftentimes um, benefit from the ABV. This is one man's opinion from the ABV being a little bit lower. Now, not in general, but I think that um, American single malts and scotches, when you have a kind of a in the 50s of ABV, so call it call it 55% ABV, 110 proof, um, that that's sort of a happy spot. Anything more than that, I think you begin to detract because the amount of alcohol brings a level of heat that I think generally overwhelms the subtle nature of malted barley. Bourbon, though, I think bourbon holds up really well to higher ABVs. Um, and because the complexity of those mash bills, corn in particular, I think is a little bit more sturdy than malted barley. Now, again, that's that's in general. Sure. I think also one of the real differentiators of certainly scotch, and then I'll segue, I'll use this as a segue into American single malts, is that, you know, scotch... And this, the, the, there, there's a, a few, a few scotches that are very, very well known that have a very uh, peat forward, a smoky forward flavor profile. Um, and I think a lot of people think of scotch as being much smokier, and I think probably in general that's fair. The reason that that there, there's there's smoke because you know, uh, well, let me ask you this. So, Sean, do you know how, do you even, do you know what malted barley, how malted barley is made? What is malted barley? I would have to, I would purely be guessing. It would be 100% speculative. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know what, but you know what barley is. Yeah. And they probably even grow barley up by you because it's a classic hardy winter crop. It's exactly. not as hardy as like rye, but it's pretty hardy. It's, well, and it's, it's, and it's, grain, important. Right? it's, it's used yeah. in beer too. So absolutely. Yeah. So when you want to malt, when you want to malt something, and as a kid, I was a great lover of, you know, some kids like shakes from like Dairy Queen, you know, mm-hmm. I like malts. I love the malt flavor to malt barley. What you do is you take barley, the grain, you get it damp, wet, and then you, you, you know, you just let it sort of sit in the heat, a nice gentle room temperature, 70, 80 degrees, whatever. And after a short period of time relative, it'll begin to germinate. So, you know, it'll begin to grow, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you take, I mean, it's a seed. And at that point, to malt something, what you do is you stop germination because it's converted or it's created so many sugars in that little barley. So what you do is you suddenly heat it to basically kill off germination. So then you're left with those more intense sugars, right? And um, so you you stop germination and then you you dry it, um, and which you do through heating, and then you grind it up and then you use that as the constituent part in the whiskey. Um, but of course, to dry it means you got to heat it, and there are lots of heat sources. You know, there's right. steam, there's wood, there's peat. So right. if you, um, so a number of Scotch whiskeys use peat, which is a very, very intense flavor. 
Um, wood in, you know, produces smoke, which depending on the wood can be very intense or a little bit more delicate. And if you're using, you know, steam or something that's a little bit more neutral, then, then that um, is not the, 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 the tool, the, the material that you're using to produce that heat is not introducing a, a, a residual flavor. Right. Um, but that's literally how that flavor is introduced into Scotch whiskey. Now, the interesting thing about what so many of the or what many of the American single malt whiskey makers are doing is they're they're sort of saying, you know, hey, I love Scotch, but and I can do a couple of things here. I can do my best to try to replicate Scotch whiskey. Um, or I can say, I like scotch, but I also really, really like the sort of indigenous properties of whatever region in the U.S. I happen to be. So how can I bring some of those native indigenous properties of whatever that region is into something that is in the spirit of a scotch whiskey? All right. Um, so this, and, so this, yeah. this is all. Is that, you know, I'm following you and I'm getting yeah. where I, and now I'm it's like. Like I went back and I was, I had to do some work to, you know, help prepare for our, our new website, which I yeah, promised yeah. you is coming. And so I was looking back over some of the previous episodes and I, I remember you talking about Whiskey Del Bac, Whiskey Del Bac, Del Bac, yeah. Del Bac. Del Bac. Okay. And you mentioned in that podcast, Mesquite. Correct. And I think that's where you're going with this is exactly. that you can use the indigenous Mesquite wood of southwestern u.s as a form of creating the heat which you know aids in the chemical process if you will that you just described yep correct it actually produces that so they you know so you're using this regional you're regionalizing the process by using a material uh, uh you know something that's unique to a given region so if you want to find mesquite um, you know, in large quantities, you go to Texas, you go to the American Southwest. That's there's lots of mesquite, you know, in other parts of the country, it might be oak, might be other, you know, sort of flavor profile woods. So what Delbac is doing, for example, is when they're and they're making single malt whiskey, they're following essentially the rules of making scotch. But I talked about those earlier. But when they're malting their barley, they're using mesquite wood which is smoky. It's very, very definite. Most people have had mesquite flavored something or other. Um, And it's obviously you're not drinking liquid mesquite. That's not how that ends up coming apart, but or coming across. But that flavor is very, very unique and it's unique to that region. And there are many others. I mean, there are other American single malt manufacturers that are doing that are doing similar things, some that want to aspire to be a little bit more Scotch-like, some that want to be very regional and unique. So, you know, Westland Distillery up in the Northwest, um, you know, 10 Mile uh, in California, uh, I think they are. Balcones uh, uh, that I'm very, very fond of um, from Texas, um, Charbet uh, in California, um, I think 10 mile may actually be in the Northeast. So I hope people don't, don't send correct me listeners if I'm wrong. Um, even, even the big guys, it's interesting. Even the big guys, the classic bourbon makers are getting into the game. Jim Beam, um, you know, one of the, one of the largest of the bourbon makers uh, in Kentucky. Um, they've recently released their very first 
um, American single malt, which is really interesting because, you know, the bourbon guys, you know, if you're a, you know, if you're a master distiller at one of the big bourbon houses and suddenly you're like, you know, they come to you and they say, Hey, just, just go way off the reservation, you know, make, make something that doesn't follow any of these bourbon rules. That's gotta be immensely fun. But anyway, I'm a big fan, Sean, to our listeners. I suggest any of the ones that I uh, just mentioned, um, and, and, uh, thank you for letting me feature, uh, whiskey Del back, um, again, cause as you can tell, I'm a big, I'm a big fan. And I think it'll be good to let our listeners know that as our new site is coming online, hopefully here in the next week or two, uh, we will be, we'll actually be listing the drink references, the mentions, if you will, for each episode on the website. So if you hear us mention something or talk about it, just head on over to drinksanddata.com. That's drinksanddata.com and check out the episode uh, notes and you'll be able to see the references that we're making to these different drinks. Some of them will link to recipes, um, et cetera. So uh, definitely use that as a source if you're intrigued by some of the things that we're talking about. All right. Well, that's fabulous, Canon. Thank you for sharing some of the details and, and clearly in the vein of being informative. That's really, really, really helpful. So thank you. You're welcome. This week's data segment is brought to you by our friends at Analytics to Win. Cannon, you know this, you've heard it before. Did you know that 70% of companies don't have a data strategy? I do know that. I know. Sadly, I know that. And I've lived that. And, and we're going to hear some more interesting stats when we get, tear into this uh, state of data and analytics report here in a minute and just kind of pick that one apart. Um, but the bottom line is, is if your company needs a data strategy, then you need analytics to win. As we've mentioned before, analytics to win is a method. It's what makes it different. It's a method that helps you craft your data strategy. The method includes a series of assessments, tools, and templates that are going to help you uncover and prioritize exactly how you should be managing your data and analyzing your data. Um, Most companies finish the process within weeks, not months. It doesn't generate a 60 slide PowerPoint deck. It gives you a very simple, clear and concise set of strategy docs, usually three sheets of paper. So if your company needs a data strategy or you need to refresh your data strategy and make sure that it is aligned to your business goals, which we'll talk about in a minute, Definitely check out analyticstowin.com today. That is analyticstowin.com. So, Canon, our, our data topic for today is the state of data and analytics. We are going to use as the centerpiece of our conversation a report that was recently released by Salesforce uh, under their Tableau division, I guess I'll say. Um, they claim that they have assembled global insights from over 10,000 analytics IT and business leaders on data management and decision making in the age of artificial intelligence. So I want to, first of all, I want to just, you know, you know, give credit where credit is due. Uh, I know that a lot of these reports, especially ones that are done by a software vendor, they, yeah, most of us just take them with a bit of a grain of salt. And I, I will tell you right now, Definitely do that with this one as well. It's none like I would say the same thing if it were a Microsoft report or if it were whatever, a Google report or anything else. So um, take this with a grain of salt. And that's part of the value of the Drinks and Data podcast is you're going to get, you know, two seasoned data veterans look through this kind of report and just kind of kind of overlay or look at it through the lens of 
a couple of us that are out here in the trenches doing real data and analytics work with our clients and help you understand how do we kind of interpret or maybe filter the information that's being presented in this report. So there are, Canon, there are basically, basically three key findings that they have kind of, I'll say, espoused or I'll say assimilated as part of this report. We're going we're gonna to unpack each of these a little bit, one probably more than the other. Um, so for them, they've basically said that there are really three key themes that have that are part of the data, the state of data and analytics. They talk, and this is not going to surprise anybody. One is basically AI related. Well, actually, two of the three are AI related. The first that they say is a strong data foundation is fueling or needs to fuel AI. So we will unpack that again. That strong data foundation or a strong data foundation fuels artificial intelligence. The second key theme is they talk about data's full potential remains elusive. I think that's where data, uh, where Canon and I can unpack that or will unpack that, that the most. And then the last, and it's an interesting statement, the way they put it, they say the road to data and AI success is winding. The long and winding road. And for both of our listeners that understand that reference to the Beatles, kudos to you. Send us a comment and we'll send you a free drinks and data coaster if you put that in the comment that you actually caught the Beatles reference that Cannon just sung for you. <laughs> that is now a first in the Drinks and Data podcast. We have singing. And for our Thank listeners, uh, neither Sean nor producer Andy caught the reference uh, when I made it earlier. Um, so I'm a child of the 70s, not the 60s. Anyway. <laughs> I don't. I don't think there's really any need to, to be ageist, Sean. <laughs> to be know? ageist. I mean, okay. you know, if if you if you've ever heard a, you know, a, a a Bach, you know, cello piece, you know, you're not a child of the, you know, 18th century or whatever. I mean, you break. It's irrelevant. You didn't know the Beatles song. You didn't know the Beatles song. I didn't know the Beatles song. You didn't know the Beatles song. Don't don't try to like contextualize it. I mean, you just didn't know it, man. You're going to force me to cause a revolution. Anyway. You should should know that song. All right. So theme number one, AI stokes demand for trusted data. Mm -hmm. All right. Key thoughts on this. What what do you see as some of the key points they've made here, Cannon? And what what do we kind of call out to be in agreement with? Or where do we maybe want to poke some holes in their thoughts? Well, I think... I think one of the things that I would say initially is that, you know, uh, you know, a strong data foundation fuels AI. Well, you know, no shit. Um, I, I think <laughs> it's like it's it's the it, it's the re- let's rewrite the sentence. Uh, a strong data foundation fuels fill in the blank. And because AI is the cool kid on the block at the moment and will be, I think, for the foreseeable future, it clearly fits. But I don't think there's anything particularly novel about that because I think a strong data foundation is important for an organization for lots of reasons, irrespective of an organization's desire or approach to AI. Yeah. Now, I read an interesting piece or heard an interesting piece last week that... um, uh, that there was a group of CEOs that were polled and and pretty much 
all of them in their in their you know comments mentioned AI and and the writer kind of did a written eye roll, but at the same time pointed out something which I do think is appropriate um, in that you know customers, clients, company boards, and honestly you know employees. AI is so prevalent in the news cycle now and in our use cases day to day that I think for a CEO to not mention it is almost borderline malpractice. Yeah. You know, even if you say, you know, we're we're evaluating ways that AI may or may not be useful in our organization. And so I think you almost have to. So because I, I, but I do also think that it is important and we've done this before on drinks and data, you got to differentiate between the types of AI because, um, you know, if you watched, you know, if you watched the Super Bowl broadcast, Microsoft and several others shelled out some big bucks. I thought the Microsoft um, don't be afraid. AI is not here to take your job and kill you. I thought that ad was pretty good. I'm paraphrasing the ad, but right. you probably remember it, right? right. Their new, uh, their office assistant. I thought it was pretty good. Um, but really what they're talking about is generative AI. Because right. that's the dog they have in the hunt. Um, and I think a lot of times when we talk about AI at the moment, we conflate AI with generative AI as opposed to what you and I might think of as AI, which is like, you know, machine language, machine learning, right? There are a lot, there's a lot of non-generative uh, AI tool sets that I think are immensely useful. Right. Um, so I think your, your, the, the approach that you take to your data ecosystem as a CIO, as a chief data officer, as a CEO, as a leader in this, in, in your company, I think you need to think about the use case first and foremost, um, and then you need to tailor your data strategy to facilitate that. But that statement is, I hope that's non-controversial, because I think that holds true whether you're talking about AI or whether you're talking about lots of different aspects of yeah. data management. What I liked about what they presented in this report is, and again, it, it's, it's a bit of a fill in the blank. They say AI shines the light on data management and the importance of data management. And you're right. You could kind of fill in the blank and put a bunch of other things where AI is. I will say I'm, I'm, I'm generally pleased being in the, the, I'll say the data practitioner space when technologies emerge that highlight the need for better data management. Okay. I, I would that I would agree wholeheartedly with that. Now, yes. now, and 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 again, not to obfuscate things, but I do have a horse in the race, as do you. I mean, we we do get paid. Believe it or not, listeners, there are some people that pay us to help them with their data-related issues. <laughs> and and um and we like that. And I do see just a pervasive need for better data management out in you know, kind of out in the corporate world these days. Yeah. So if AI can do a job to highlight a, a need for better data management, I, I'm, I'm kudos. I'm all in on, on, on you know, again, build that buzz around it. Okay. Agreed. And you, and you know, what's, what's, what is interesting. I, I agree with that, Sean, that in, in this study, there were really five 
uh, analytics and IT leader top priorities that they called out. And they're really pretty straightforward. There's improved data quality, strengthen security and compliance, build AI capabilities, improve company-wide data literacy, and modernize tools and technologies. So if you look at that list out and, and you say, well, what's novel about it? Well, build AI capabilities. That presumes that you want to build AI capabilities. But the others, improving data quality, security compliance, data literacy, modernizing tools and technologies, presumably to assist in things like self-service and you know, user-driven, you know, analytics. Th- those are all, I think, greater goods outside of just the AI arena. So in that regard, to your earlier point, if AI is driving the conversation about these more uh, generalized goods when it comes to data maturation, then, hey, that's dynamite. Yeah, I would I would completely agree. I, I think they're, those five priorities that they listed are... I'll say they're mostly good. I'm not sure that a lot of businesses necessarily wake up in the morning and say, you know what? You know what I really think we need to do? I really think we need to modernize our tools and technologies. Like, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I kind of think that that one's kind of, of that's the clunker in the five. Yeah. Yeah, I look I at that. You know, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm building data strategies for companies on a regular basis. And part of when we build strategies, we, it's it's imperative that we identify those strategic objectives that the company has around data. And you guys have heard me espouse that in the, the data strategy fundamental podcast that we had like episodes, whatever, two and three. So I don't think I don't think people modernize for the sake of modernizing. They modernize because it's trying to achieve a, a, a greater purpose. Um, and so that that one to me, I kind of I kind of kick that one to the curb and say there's a better reason for doing that. But the rest of them about, you know, getting data literacy improved and the data quality. I, and I kid you not, I've mentioned this before. This comes up in every data strategy I've put together in the last five years. The improving data quality has been one of the key themes. So this list really hasn't honestly hasn't changed all that much in the last 10 years, with the exception of build your AI capabilities. That's kind of the new bright and shiny object. So, yeah, but I, as- I, you know, I, I think the, the the subtlety of what you said there, I agree with now from a CIO, CIO's office. I would I would suggest perhaps that there are certain technologies that making an effort to modernize or certainly keep current. Um, those are there. There are table stakes involved outside of the data arena. You know, so yeah. um, but the, but and, the benefit and, isn't for the yeah. sake of modernization. Correct. Yeah, 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 correct. Now, Nasinic would also say that being spon- this particular study sponsored by Salesforce and Tableau <laughs> as the last item that certainly fills their primary or their their let uh, their their fiduciary mission to grow their book of business. But you and I, neither of us are nearly cynical enough to imply that that might be the motivation for that, that point. All right. So Ken, let's transition into the second key theme that was in this uh, report from folks over at Salesforce and Tableau. So their second big theme was that, I I just, I'm just going to say it the way it is. They say data's full potential remains elusive. Clearly written yeah. by a marketer. Um, this is uh, this is one of those things where it's I don't know what uh, what would Homer Simpson say like oh. well or what would you know what would Samuel L. Jackson in Pulp Fiction say he he would he would say 
<laughs> he would say, look at the big brain on bread. Yeah. Right, exactly. right. Yeah. Now that yeah, for I, our users illustrate, maybe that, that may illustrate better than anything the difference between you and me, Sean, is that you go to a Homer set from the Simpsons reference. I go to a Samuel L. Jackson and Pulp Fiction reference. Yeah. I right really there. want a duh versus a doe, I think is what it comes down to. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's, that's, yeah. that's really Well, it's kind of like, you know, can I, but before, can I just, the, what, here's, here's what that point illustrates to me. And I think are, I are you saying data's full potential remains elusive? This is this point illustrates to you. Yes, exactly. Okay. Well, exactly. It's kind of like one of the biggest points of pablum in the data management arena in the last decade is this phrase: "Data is the new oil." Oh yeah, exactly. Right. I, I didn't even have to prompt. You didn't know what I was going to say, but uh, I knew. I, I knew. As soon as you said data is, I knew exactly. I, know, I knew that I was going to get elicit that groan yeah, because exactly. it's one of the most groan inducing phrases because it's just meaningless. Uh, and um, data's full potential remains elusive. Well, no kidding. It's always going to remain elusive. That's the point of striving. I mean, yeah. if you if it didn't remain elusive. You know, I, you're never going to be, it's never, of course it's going to remain elusive. Yeah. So I, I don't know this, you're right. This is a, I, I believe that, 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 that this, this cover slide was written at three 30 on a Friday by the <laughs> Salesforce marketing folks. They just okay, wanted now, to get the hell out. Yeah, exactly. And that's and all there, there, there's no, there's no way anyone could say that this point is wrong. It is Absolutely. Which is why it's probably a really good lead in. And that's right. kind of the duh, right? Exactly. Now, yeah. where, where, I, where I will give them props, where props are due, is if we unpack that point that they put in there, the exactly. very first point after it, they say data strategies are disconnected from business goals. Now, that is the flip, the 100%, 180-degree, diametrically opposed in terms of value. That is an absolute correct statement. And the, we've, we've, talked, we've had segments on that entire statement here on Drinks and Data. Yeah, I, exactly. And they, they, they did gather some uh, supposed empirical data on this. And I, I still feel like... They've overstated this a little bit. Now, they say that 41% of their line of business leaders intimate that their data strategy has only partial or no alignment with their business objectives. Yeah, I bet it's higher than that, don't you? I, I, I honestly think it's higher than that. I think they're actually shooting a little low with those numbers. But I'd, but, be, surpri I'd be surprised if 41% of business leaders could even say that they have a data strategy. I would agree because we yeah. know that up to 70% of companies don't have a data strategy. Yeah. So if you don't have it, it can't be aligned. So I, I would, now again, it, it's all contextual, right? Remember if, if you're a software vendor and you're out talking to an analytics or IT leader or a line of business leader, and you ask them that question, there's this inherent bias where nobody wants to admit that they actually haven't. Right. Yeah, that's right. I'll look bad if I, I'll look, I'll look bad. Right. Yeah. So I think, I think that easily explains away the low, the lower numbers, but even at that point, I think they've hit the nail on the head where they're saying that those data strategies that companies do have aren't, aren't properly connected or aligned to their business goals. 
And we it's, see this it's, all the time. It's the, it's the first thing in the, the process that our, our wonderful sponsor analytics to win. When you go through that strategy, when you're implementing that strategy process, it's, it's the first thing that gets sort of shaken out. It's the alignment of business goals business strategies to data strategies. And if yep. that disconnect exists, you ought to understand that up front. And if you can't make that reconnection, then you ought to stop the process because okay. otherwise you'll have a lot of wasted resources and a lot of wasted time. Yep. Um, and it's, it's the, the, the data strategy should illuminate and facilitate the business strategy period, full stop. Yep. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I, they, so that's they do, you're right. So the so when Salesforce and Tableau points that out, hundred percent agree with that. Hundred percent. I think I think the hole in the that they're the, the gap that they left is they they didn't put in any commentary about how that misalignment uh, basically impedes prioritization. Okay. Yeah. Well, you that, know what? They inadvertently, I think. Um, implied it when they talked about the metrics of of such in that they said that the highest percentage metric uh of of success and alignment was it and it and analytics employee productivity at 47 percent right that it and or that it leaders and analytics folks follow that metric um so ironically um, if they're 40, you know, almost half of an organization is in, in general following employee productivity, but there's lack of alignment, um, in the organization, then guess what? Probably the result that they're, they're witnessing is lower productivity. Yeah. yeah. Especially if yeah. you're an analytics or IT leader, because you're looking at it from that, from, from that particular perspective. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. Yeah. And I still go back to the, to the point that, one of the key benefits of having a strategy is it helps prioritize the key efforts that you need to execute on. And that's, that's when I talk to companies and like, and I ask them, why do you even want a data strategy? And it's like, cause we don't know what to do next. Right. Yeah, cause you've got yeah. so many choices. That's a good and answer. I, that's a good answer. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and, answer. and if I can get a company to be that honest, that we don't know what to do next. Cause there's so many choices. Like, Amen, hallelujah. Let's go ahead and get a strategy in place because we will use that, that we want that alignment, but I don't just want alignment for the sake of knowing what to do. I want alignment up to your business goals so that when you execute your data strategy, you're doing stuff that's going to help you achieve your business goals. Right. So uh, right. kudos to Salesforce for highlighting that if there's a disconnect there. Um, I think they could have tightened it up a little bit better and talked about, pri about prioritization, I, but, I, but I like where I, they went with it. I agree, and I think I'll do I'll do credit there. Although I would immediately then push back a little bit on another of their key points when it comes to roadblocks about which is that they're suggesting that one of the chief culprits for organizations not um, achieving their data needs is fear of vulnerabilities and security risks, and I I think that's uh, immensely self-serving and not accurate. I, I, I think that a, that security risks are a key component to a data strategy and certainly a technology strategy and technology roadmap. 
But do you, I mean, do you think that security concerns are really holding back that many organizations being successful with their data strategy, Sean? I, I don't think it's, I think it is a, like we talked about on failed data projects, how some of the new security kind of protocols and just the way you're doing integrations with API keys and oh, all that yeah, kind of yeah. stuff. That's, it, that's a different, yeah. That's, it kind of complicates some of your data management efforts or some of your integration efforts. But I don't think it's being a roadblock as much yeah. as just, it's simply adding complexity. Adding complexity. Yeah, it's not, yeah. I don't think it's a road, it's not a roadblock. You know, yeah. I mean, you know, you, you get things like, you know, data visibility and certainly data quality. But I don't think that, you know, sec I mean, security threats are key and immensely important. But I don't think they're top of mind to leaders when it comes to thinking about data strategy. <laughs> Do you want to know what a roadblock to achieving your data goals is? What's that? HIPAA. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's true. So the kind of uh, yeah, the the, uh, the white hat vulnerability, right? The, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I've got an idea. Let's obfuscate the unique key that connects an individual across all health systems around the country. Let's just That'd do it. That that will um, that'll definitely be a roadblock in achieving your Yeah, that's a self. Uh, you know, that's like you know, that's that's picking up the biggest hammer in your toolbox and whacking yourself in the knee. Yeah, exactly. So I, that actually, I should. I, that, I, I I should say to our listeners, I'm not implying that the goals of HIPAA are equatable to picking up a hammer and whacking yourself in the knee in any way, shape, or form. Not at all. But if you were looking for a big heaping dose of cynicism from the Drinks and Data podcast, you just got it. So. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. You know, I, I do think that the uh, uh, the maxim of well-intended uh, consequences uh, in, in, uh, applies to HIPAA and many of our other uh, overarching security regimes, uh, security yeah. framework regimes. But yeah, uh, the, the the report stating that they think security threats is like the top data challenge for business yeah, leaders. Yeah. Yeah, I that's again, if if we were playing fact or crap, I would yeah. I would I would say I'm sh I'm certain it is for some companies. Yeah. Was this but was it, this report sponsored by FireEye? I mean, maybe, <laughs> you know, it really needs to be a. I, I, if it was a security company, that would be respectable. Exactly. So yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's yeah. Um, again, I don't want to intimate that security is not something you need to take seriously, and that security threats aren't something you should you should actively guard against. But I can tell you that the companies that I'm working with, they are not. That is not what is generally keeping. Um, keeping them, I'll say, thwarting their efforts and getting value from their data. I agree with that. I agree with that. I think we should probably now consider the Beatles point of this uh, uh, of, of this of this presentation. Um, the long and winding road. Uh, oh, hang on! Before oh, we get, yeah. I got, I got. We got to do one more that I definitely think we'll agree with. And again, I don't want to. I, I, we're kind of seesawing here, so I want to give Salesforce a little bit of props in this as well. And that is their second, you know, I'll say one of their other points was that they still say data quality remains a top priority. Right? Yeah. And that's the, that is kudos because that's a hundred percent accurate. Yeah. I'm, I'm right there. I'm right there with them on that. And, and it, this is a very, and again, we're taking all these, you know, we're choosing which statistics we want to 
uh, believe in and which ones we don't. So just we, should, we got to remember to post the link to this yeah. study so our users yeah. will have a clue about. Well, and, and, and let me be very clear. I want to point out a big kudos. I'm sure she will listen to this episode. Her name's Julia Henley. She runs Henley Consulting. Um, definitely go out and check out henleyconsulting.com. Um, Julia is the one who turned me on to this particular report and brought it to my attention. So I thank her very much. This has been really helpful. Thank you, um, Julia. Yeah, but to, that, to the point, that, so there's a statistic I'm going to throw out real quick. They say 57% of data and analytics, analytics leaders have complete confidence in their data's accuracy. That seems high. I think it's high. It's, it's, this is one of those where it's like, man, that seems high. But even if yeah. it was right, it still stinks. You yeah, know? yeah, that's that's true. That's that maybe that's called you know damning with faint praise, right? Yes. You know? So yeah, exactly. Yeah. So or maybe it's it, or maybe it's that those uh, the forty three percent that don't uh, don't use Salesforce as a CRM <laughs> system. <laughs> I'm trying to. I'm, I'm helping out here. I'm trying yeah, to. Yeah, I know. Out. I know. Yeah. The forty three percent that don't. Yeah. I. I think I want to spend was, some time at the that, was, that cynical, was that cynical, Sean? Was that was. A cynical break? Another, another heaping dose I, of cynicism. I apologize. I'm, it's the it's the medication that I'm on. It's making, yeah, yeah. making me more cynical than normal. So, so I, I liked that. I think that's a great point. I'm glad they I highlighted do. it. It supports a lot of what we're seeing with our clients as we're out there. And I think it's a really important point for data leaders. You, you got to keep data quality front and center. Um, and we'll, we'll, I think we need to unpack an episode down the road here where we just unpack data quality in and of itself and talk about some techniques to help kind of guard against it and improve yeah, it. Yeah, we, we should. And I mean, and also kudos to Salesforce and Tableau, we should say, to their their following point on that section, which is the, the, the point about, you know, surging data volumes, overwhelming users. I think that is that is accurate both for business users and also for data management professionals. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. You remember, do you remember the, like the five V's that were really yeah. big, you know, the volume and velocity and variety, yeah. et cetera, of data, you know, and I, I, I get, I do admit, I want to kind of, you know, staple my head to the floor every time I watch somebody do a presentation and they have this, the up, the exponential chart showing the volume of data growth every day. Right. And yeah, that's like right. that's like we all get it, people. We yeah, we, yeah. we know that tons of data is being generated, right? But it, it shouldn't be lost on data leaders that you know you got to figure out how to corral that. Um, and and you may not. It's like it's like you can't you, you can't stop it, but you might well, be able or, to or I might I'm, I might say because I'm not sure. Um, this may be a rare point of minor disagreement for us, sure. John. I'm not sure that data volumes in today and age, today's age can actually be corralled. I think the trick is, is, is creating systems, structures, and mechanisms to effectively and efficiently drink from the fire hose. Yeah. I, it's, it's actually not, a, it's not even... It's not even a minor point of contention. I would agree, and I would just put it under the auspices that containing it is different. Yeah. It's, yeah, you, you've got to have good strategies on to know what to do with that data and know, be aware that it's increasing. I agree. All right, so Canada, the third key theme in the report that we're talking about today from Salesforce and Tableau. The Beatles theme. The Beatles theme. theme. 
Yeah, the Beatles theme. So go ahead. What is it? It's the long and winding road. It's the road to data and AI success that is winding, which I would which I would rephrase as the long and winding road to data and AI success. There you go. And and we may have to have producer Andy do some quick uh, googling to make sure that if we use that uh, formulation of this segment, we don't get sued. If so, let's just let me just be on the record that I'm I'm using that in the spirit of one being a Beatles fan and two fair use. So for you copyright lawyers out there, yeah, and for you, for you kept for you copyright lawyers out there, my first name is spelled S H A W. Yeah, exactly. All right, knock it off. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. All right. So the road to data and AI success is winding. Okay. And again, this is a. Yeah, I think that that marketer was running out of time when they had to write that that particular theme as well. In fact, I think it was like their chief data officer for Salesforce. I think she wrote these or she claims to have written them. We've really screwed the possibility of ever having Salesforce sponsor our podcast. uh, It's probably true. It's probably true. You know what? Tough. We've given them some props. We call it, we have, and we call it like we see it. As honest brokers, I think they should... They should actually thank us for for an evaluation. I think as honest brokers, they should just hire us to write the next one for them, and then we'll just then, then we're sure to get it right. We could do that. Yes, exactly. Because <laughs> we are we are after our legends in our own minds. Exactly. Okay, so they they start to break this last point down, and 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 again, in the spirit of giving them credit, yeah. we're, we're I think credit. Is, I think they say they say data culture spurs data driven decisions. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, I have, I, you know, there's an assessment in analytics to win that helps assess your data driven culture and your decision making style. And so, you know, I, I'm asking executives these kinds of questions all the time. I, I will admit I like their definition of data culture. They, they it's it's a, li- a bit lengthy, but, you know, it's a collective, be- you know, it's the collective behaviors and beliefs of people who value practice and encourage data usage to improve decision making. I'm, I'm good with that. The the culture, the data culture in an organization is it's not always that easy to tangibly improve. Like that's right. I think companies they, they all want to. And uh and and this was a I shouldn't even say it was an unintended consequence or an unintended outcome, but I talked about this uh, several episodes back when we talked about um, assessments as part of a data strategy. I think assessments are a great way to assess your data culture and how you do data-driven decisions or make data-driven decisions, and then monitor it over time. Do what I call longitudinal reporting to see if that's changing as a way to see if your your data culture is improving. So... Uh, and I and I think most organizations that I, at least I'm talking to, they they do suffer from data. From I'll say, it's it's kind of like you know the last point that they made about you know basically you're not getting as much value out of your data as you could, right? It's right. kind of like your data driven your data culture is probably not as good as it could be, right? It's, it, that's a little bit of a duh, but I am glad that they're highlighting it as an important area to consider. I agree with that. I would I would agree I would agree with that. So, I think the last key point we'll touch on here um is again one that 
you know, we've brought up on a number of occasions. And, and again, this is another, this is an entire episode, probably a, a multitude of episodes. They, they put a spotlight on basically redefining your data governance. Um, they're, I guess, you know, the statistic they use, they say 85% of analytics and IT leaders use data governance to ensure and certify baseline data quality. I don't believe that. Okay. Um, maybe 85% of executives that interview that have been interviewed asking them if they want to keep their jobs and they need to answer this question, yes, have said yes, it they use data governance. Maybe they're afraid to say no, we don't use data governance. But if I asked, if I went in and polled a thousand companies and looked for practices that demonstrate data governance is being exercised, it ain't 85%. I think they probably get to that, uh, that, that um, impossible to believe percentage by, by the way they define data governance, which I actually think is so broad as to be almost in, if you don't say yes to their broad definition, you're guilty of professional malfeasance. Yeah, it's. I think they're saying yeah, if you think, use yeah. if you use a system that yeah. has a drop down menu to give you a set of predefined field yeah, options, yeah. Yeah. you're you're exercising data yeah. governance. Do you have a yeah you know a set of rules or policies by which information is managed or stored? It's like, do you leave a, 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 you know, a printed out copy of all the company salaries on top of the, the copy machine? No. <laughs> well, therefore we must be using data government. Exactly. I mean, no kidding. I mean, come yeah. on. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think, I think it's too bad. I think it's too bad that that one percentage or that one statistic that they list undermines what, um, frankly, it's irrelevant for the point they're making because, Data governance, along with data quality, is immensely important for any successful data initiative. Yeah. And um, you and I see that a lot. You and I work with companies on that a lot. Yeah. Um, the problem with data governance is, you know, it's like, um, you know, everybody wants to pick out finishings for their house, but they don't think about you know, the importance of making sure you don't have drywall with, you know, mold spores in it. It's, you know, without data governance practices and policies in place and people educated, trained and energized to use them, you know, you're going to undermine everything that comes afterwards. And yeah. it's just too bad. It's not sexy stuff. I get that. I mean, you and I implement these things for clients we have for our whole career. But it's just not the most engaging stuff. But it's immensely important. Yeah, it's the it's, it's the broccoli it's the broccoli of the data management world, right? Yeah. You, yeah. you know, you know, you need it. You know, it's good for you. It's just, you know, the only way to make it go down is if you put a lot of cheese on it. A lot I mean, of cheese, baby. A lot of cheese, man. That's what it comes down to. A lot so, of cheese. Yeah. yeah a lot of I, cheese. I agree. I I like the. The way that they've broken down and kind of talk about data governance in the report, I just don't buy the statistics that they present. So if you get a chance to look at this report, I think there's some value in reading through this section. I just, again, I just don't think I would 
I, I don't I take the, the statistics that they've got with a big grain of salt. Yeah, take their take their numerical um, conclusions with a big grain of salt, but put value on the points that they're making. I agree with Agreed. that. Agreed. All right, awesome. Sean. I hey, think we this, may have I think we've come to the end of our segment here. Yeah, I think I think that this is a good place to do to do a wrap. Uh, again, uh, big shout out to Julia Henley at Henley Consulting for uh, making us aware of this report. If you, as one of our you know fine listeners of the Drinks and Data podcast, stumble across any research or articles that you think would be interesting for us to pontificate on as part of one of the podcasts, please please let us know. Uh, let us know in the comments out at the Drinks and Data website at drinksndata.com. That would be fabulous. So uh, again, Canon, great. Thank you for uh, talking this through. I'm glad we got a good uh, a good like expositional dissertation of sorts on American single malt. I can keep going. I can't really call it scotch. I'll just call it American single malt. You, you can't whiskey. call it scotch. Can't call. See, I learned. I'm capable of learning. No. Don't. Tell my wife. All right. With that, I want to thank you all for participating in this episode or listening in on this episode. As always, please go out and give us a five-star rating out on your favorite podcast platform. We would very much appreciate it. Before we close, I want to give you the drinks and data proverb of the day. For those of you who are keeping track at home, the drinks and data proverb of the day is intervention is sometimes required. That's our proverb. Intervention is sometimes required, be it your drinks or your data. All right. With that, thank you so much again, Cannon. Thank you, everyone, for paying attention and listening to this podcast. I look forward to getting back together with you guys and talking through this some more very, very soon. Cheers, Thanks, everyone. Sean. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, everyone. Cheers. Cheers.